don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Listen, I could spend the next hour dancing around the elephant in the room, but I'd rather give it to you guys straight. This is the final episode of the current series of Second Captain Saturday. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but don't worry. We're going out with a bang. Hi, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Oh, it's going okay. It feels a little bittersweet today, I must say. What with it being the the final episode of this series. A series that, I, I must say, right from episode one, I've enjoyed it when Richard Ford told us how his grueling daily exercise regimen contributes to his mental stability as a novelist into his 70s. To Johnny Watterson last week, speaking so movingly about his late brother, Peter. There was Dira Negrifa's story of strolling into Supermax in Ennis in 1995 and winning a pair of tickets to the All-Ireland Hurling Final. A story she somehow milked for 84 points <laughs> on your, frankly, quite ridiculous scoring system. Uh, it, it, you know, there are questions, legitimate questions have been asked. That's over and done with Murph, that sorry, shameful episode of our otherwise well-respected show. Our guest today, Orla Gearan, has been widely recognised for the brilliant reporting she's done for the BBC from all over the world, often from war zones and areas of conflict. Before all that, she became RT's youngest ever foreign correspondent in 1990, and she presented Morning Ireland for a time as well. She's currently the BBC's international correspondent, most recently based in Istanbul, and she spent a number of years as Pakistan correspondent, where she built up a deep knowledge of the Taliban, which is what makes the timing of today's chat all the more opportune in the week that the US and its allies of officially withdraw from Afghanistan, leaving the Taliban in power once again. I think Orla's just about the perfect person to give us an insight into the Taliban, who they are and how they think and what life is going to be like for those left behind in Afghanistan. And of course, she's the only person standing between Malcolm Gladwell and a place at the top of the second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. Murph, what is the latest, please? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, on as we approach the final bend, seasoned runner Malcolm Gladwell is celebrating Eamon Coughlin style in the faces of his humbled foes on 88 points. Orla Guerin has spent the last few days talking down her chances to us, but is she hiding something? Score more than world-renowned architect Yvonne Farrell's 77 points, and she'll be out of the relegation zone and into the safe harbour of mid-table. Does she have it in her, though? That's the question for Orla to answer in just a few minutes' time. I see how you're framing this, Murph. I think Gladwell. I think Gladwell's top spot might be secured mm. at this point. Not to take too much suspense well, away from the episode so early on, but it, it does feel that he's way. He's on the podium. It's the colour of the medal now that we're talking about, <laughs> uh, and it's go- it's yeah. probably going to be gold. But you know, there's competition all the way down this league table. That's what makes this such a compelling sure. radio segment. Huh? No, truly compelling. <laughs> Text us on five one double five one. Compelling and not ridiculous at all. Tweet at second captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Or like and on the way but first here's a little love song for our final show of the series
Sonic Youth and Superstar, that's our breakup song, but we're not there just yet, you guys. Our final guest of the series is one of the world's top journalists and foreign correspondents who's been honoured with awards from around the globe for a career that spanned over 30 years, not to mention the five Emmy nominations she picked up in the US. But from our correspondence with the BBC's Orla Geeran pre-show, it seems the award that's causing her more anxiety than any other is the second captain's non-sports person sports person 2021. <laughs> Orla, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And I have been in intense preparation. Uh, I've been digging very, very deep, I can tell you, to give Kieran something to work with, anything to work with. I've got a direct quote from an early email you sent to our producer, Mark. I can guarantee you I know less about all sports than anyone you've ever interviewed. And I know there is some competition for that title. Murph, come on, maybe outline the sporting knowledge of a couple of previous guests. Just put Orla at ease here. Uh, yeah, to start I mean, this well, if, like a few spring to mind on. Uh, Blind Boy Book Club Sporting Highlight was going to school with Paul O'Connell and once witnessing him mm. throw an apple at a teacher's head. Maeve Higgins's highlight was crying at age seven when she got a yellow hurling helmet for her Christmas present. Katrina Krull mm. fancied George Best. That was the subtotal for the love of God. So we're not looking for much. We have full faith in you, Orla. Okay, well, I think the bar has been set uh, suitably <laughs> low for me there. So uh, I, might, I might just manage to clamber over it. Let's see. Well, it's funny enough, we have had a, some sort of these heartwarming tales, this series of falling in love with sport, especially since COVID. Darren Negrifa was talking about how she fell in love with running in the last couple of years. I, I hear you've also recently taken up training. Has the bug bitten? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of nagged into... Um, 
starting work with a personal trainer who is in fact okay. a friend of my cameraman and lives in my district. So he said, look, you've no excuse. You know, she's literally down the road. So and she's a great professional, I should say. So she came on the first day and we were chatting and she said, look, you know, what, what kind of sport have you done in the past? And I said, oh, you know, nothing. And she said, oh, no, but like, you know, when you lived in other places, maybe before when you were living in, in Istanbul. And I said, no, really, you know, nothing. And she said, but like years ago, when you were younger, when you were in college, and I said, no, no, really, no. I mean, we were almost back to high babies. And she was like excavating to try and find out if yeah. I had done anything. But I must say that um, she's been amazing and she's merciless, as I suppose, you know, personal trainers should be. But I've sort of been winning her over to the dark side because on her first visit, I said, look, you know, inevitably afterwards, I said, let's have a cup of tea or a coffee. And she said, OK, fine, but I won't eat anything. I said, OK. And as the visits, you know, progressed and one followed another, kind of chocolate biscuits were introduced and then a little bit of carrot cake made its way onto the table. And, and now I guarantee you, you know, she's not leaving uh, without a sugar rush. So, yeah, I've sort of corrupted my personal trainer. This is going on. This is completely the wrong way. Right? This is going completely wrong. But it sounds like, are you getting any of the, you know, you're getting your own endorphin rush that you're supposed to get all this no pain, no gain stuff? Yeah, listen, I don't believe in any of that, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I salute those who think it exists and, and who find that it works for them. <laughs> No, there's been nothing but pain. Um, but I suppose <laughs> I, I feel a little bit um, relieved when it's over. Yeah, that's that's kind of my reaction mm. to it. So that's we can say that the, the sporting book has not bitten dead. Let's be honest here, Orla. No, and I think my personal trainer might want to sack me. But mm. but, you know, she's she's carrying on for the moment. We'll come back to some of that later on, but it is a great time to have you on the show with the with what's going on at the moment, really. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan, the international withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I want to get into what it's going to mean to the people there, but uh, I understand you're hoping to get over there yourself pretty soon. Yeah, I have an Afghan visa, and I hope to be there within the next few weeks. Um, you know, I should say I'm not an expert on the country, but when I was based in, in Pakistan for four years, between 2009 and 2013, I did make um, several trips to Afghanistan. And I suppose I'd have to say um, I know the Taliban. I mean, during my years in Pakistan, it was the, the heights of a Taliban bombing campaign. And I saw the aftermath of many of those attacks, you know, civilians killed uh, in huge numbers in mosques, in markets, on the streets. I mean, this is an organization with a track record of targeted killings, of mass suicide bombings. And in fact, during my time in Pakistan, I interviewed a, a failed suicide bomber, a would-be bomber. He had been uh, arrested before he could carry out his attack. And speaking to him, uh, I got a real sense of the mindset um, of many of these Taliban fighters because I said, look, if you had been asked to go and, and carry out your attack in a marketplace full of women and children, would you have done it? And without hesitation, he said, absolutely. Mm. He said, if I had been told by my leader to go and blow up my own parents, I would have done it. So, I mean, we've all heard the statements coming from the Taliban leadership in Afghanistan. They are trying to present themselves as a more a moderate organization, a sort of a Taliban 2.0. Um, is that the case? I think many Afghans are deeply skeptical, deeply fearful. Uh, and we've seen the terrible scenes at, at Kabul airport uh, of people frantically trying to leave. 
How are you, when you're trying to plan something like this to go over and, and get a feel for what's actually happening over there, how do you actually plan it when the situation is so volatile there? Well, I, I suppose in many ways I'm, I'm fortunate in working for the BBC and that it's a very large organisation um, with a long history of working in, in places like Afghanistan and indeed in Afghanistan specifically. Uh, and one of our producers in Kabul has been working for the BBC there for 20 years. So, you know, he has seen the rise and fall of the Taliban and he's seen them rise again. But obviously these kind of trips have to be carefully worked out Um there are risks involved, and, and not just for ourselves, but the risks now would be far more acute for any local staff that would be working with us. And I have to say, in general, in places like this, the risk is for local journalists, local producers, rather than for international journalists who, you know, are almost always in a position to, to fly in and out. Uh, our exit is almost always guaranteed, and, and that's not the case for the journalists who are living there. How are you feeling about it, uh, like uh, the, the prospect of going to Afghanistan? Are you nervous? Are you excited? Is that, is that a strange word to use in this scenario? No, I, I think it's a fair question. Um, I would say I'm anxious to get there. Um, and, and there's always that sense when a story is happening that, that you feel it's, you know, it's, it's your duty to, to go and do it. Um, I should also say, by the way, in the context of the BBC, there's never any pressure on people to undertake assignments in areas that are risky. Uh, I mean, if anything, it's often the opposite, that there are more people who want to go uh, that, can, that can actually go and do the story. So, you know, we're not uh, kind of dragooned out the door to go to dangerous places. But I, mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm attracted by the danger, but, but foreign news and, and stories of this kind are often the most interesting uh, and the most urgent and in a way although they can be tricky they're they're almost always the most fulfilling when you have a chance to go and do them so I sort of see it in, in that framework um, I mean I should say relative to what I was saying earlier um, yes the risks are greatest in this case for Afghan journalists and, and for Afghan civilians but over the years in which I've I've been doing this kind of work um, there have been colleagues and friends that I have lost, and I'm thinking particularly of, of Simon Cumbers, uh, the wonderful Irish cameraman who was killed on assignment for the BBC in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, none of us are blasé about it, um, because when we take a risk, we take a risk as a team. Uh, so it's not just a risk for yourself, it's a risk that other people are also running. It's so interesting for us to talk to someone who's literally come face to face with Taliban fighters. Can you go back to the meeting the suicide bomber you mentioned? How did that come to pass? Where did it take place? What sort of insight into these people's mentality were you able to get? I mean, we, we were able to arrange that interview through um, Pakistani security forces who had been carrying out a very long campaign uh, to try to deal with Taliban attacks. And, and during those years in particular, uh, the Taliban were basically trying to overthrow the Pakistani state, um, which was backed by the US. They wanted to, to overthrow the government, so they were carrying out attacks any time that they could manage it, and, and not only against security targets. So we were able to get access to the, the failed bomber through them. Uh, I have to say he was an interesting interview. Um, he agreed to be interviewed by us, but not, if memory serves, not to look me in the face. Um, so I think he wouldn't, he wouldn't meet my gaze. I, his face was covered, I think. Um, my impression of him as an individual was that he is somebody who, who probably was quite easy to manipulate. 
uh, and to brainwash. And he claimed that himself. He claimed that he had been brainwashed. But we also, on, on the same story, we interviewed the bomb maker, who was a very different kind of individual. He was in his early 20s. He was extremely articulate. Um, he didn't speak English, but he spoke in, in Pashto. But my translator was saying he had a, a very educated uh, way of expressing himself. And the chilling thing in that interview was that the the um, senior Pakistani police officer who had arrested both of these men was present in the room. And I said to the bomb maker, uh, I said, look, are you disappointed? You know, you, you failed. You didn't manage to carry out your attack. And he said, no, I'm not disappointed at all. Uh, I'll be released in a few months and I know where my next attack is going to be. And I said, where is that? And he pointed at the policeman and he said, I'm coming back here for him. And, you know, it might have sounded as if he was being fanciful, saying he would get out in a few months. But that's what tended to happen at that time. Uh, there was huge intimidation of witnesses. And in all my years in Pakistan and the countless bombings that took place, uh, I think there was one conviction uh, at a high level for, for a Taliban fighter. So there was... Um, every likelihood that he would have got out in a few months and, and could have tried again. Was it clear that they felt that they'd be back running uh, Afghanistan someday? I mean, the, that level of bravado that you just described there would suggest that they were more than happy to bide their time in, in this respect. I mean, I, I think they do play the long game. I'm not sure if, if they expected the events of, of recent weeks to unfold the way they did. I, I suspect, and this is really just a guess on my part, that they may have been surprised uh, by the speed with which they got to Kabul. But I remember 20 years ago, after they were driven out uh, in the post 9-11 world, reading a piece, I think it was in the Washington Post, and it was a very revealing but very simple story in a way. It was an interview with, with a group of women across Afghanistan about the experience of wearing the burqa and what that was actually like. How did it feel? You know, what were the practical problems? And there were some very interesting anecdotes, you know, almost comical about how they bumped into things and couldn't see where they were going. And of course, there were more... Um, you know, deeper thoughts about the invisibility and the powerlessness. And I remember one woman who I think was a teacher saying that when the Taliban had been driven out, all of her friends had got together and sort of had a party cutting up their burqas. And she said, you know, I just put mine in the back of the wardrobe because I believe these guys will be back. And at the time I thought, you know, gosh, I can't really see that coming. But they did buy their time. Um, I, I think they always knew, certainly since President Trump took over, that the Americans were, were, were running down the clock, that they wanted to be out of Afghanistan, uh, that they weren't prepared to continue suffering casualties and spending money. And Joe Biden took the decision to, to stick by the Trump deal and to pull them out. Now, I suspect the manner of that pullout will be studied for a long time to come in, in military colleges and in political science courses. Uh, and I think it will be very hard to, to consider it, you know, as anything other than uh, an absolutely, you know, unmitigated disaster. The last time you were in Afghanistan was a particularly interesting moment in the country's history, I think. Could you talk to us about the sense you got of what life was like back then? Yeah, I was there about three times and I think the last time was, was 2012. And as, as it happens, I was there when the 10th anniversary uh, of the fall of the Taliban or, or the Taliban being driven out of Kabul. I was there when, when that came around. And I remember doing an interview with the NATO uh, ambassador to Afghanistan at the time who was sort of 
proudly boasting in a way of all of the changes that had taken place, of how bustling Kabul was, of how many women were out on the streets, how many girls were in school. Um, and there was a sense then, I suppose, of, of hope, of possibility, of, you know, people um, building a new life. I think now, for many, uh, that has come to a juddering halt. And, you know, we do have the Taliban saying publicly that women will be allowed to continue an education uh, within the confines of Sharia law, which, of course, they will define. Um, and we have them saying, for example, that the media will be allowed to, to work, continue working again within the confines of Sharia law to be defined by them. And as long as they, quote unquote, maintain impartiality, which again will be defined by them. So I think it will be very important to watch in, in the weeks and months ahead what actually takes place on the ground and not only in Kabul, but also in the more remote rural areas. But, you know, very tellingly, the, the, the female anchor who made history by doing an interview with the Taliban leader uh, on air on Tolo TV in Afghanistan, she has since fled uh, and fled because she fears the Taliban. How bad will life get for women specifically, do you think? I think it's a huge fear uh, for many who have spent the last 20 years trying to build a different society for themselves, for the young girls of Afghanistan, for the generations that will follow. And, and trying to do that with huge encouragement from the West, with constant messaging that, you know, we're here to support you. We believe in human rights. We believe in education for girls. Um, I mean, the Taliban say girls will be allowed to continue in school, of course, in separate classes to boys. That's the public statement. But for example, information that's coming to, to BBC colleagues of mine from Herat, which is the third largest city in Afghanistan, is that women are already being told to wear burqas and stay home. So, um, you know, maybe if, if there is some hope um, to be found in this scenario, I, I think it's that you know, 20 years of change can't be wiped out in an instant. You know, there is a generation of Afghans now, both men and women, who have been brought up um, to expect a better life, who have been brought up with education and, and, and with aspirations, with hopes, just like a 20-year-old would have here. And, you know, you can brutally suppress that for a certain time, but I'm not sure that you can erase it. So I think the Taliban will, will have to confront the fact that Afghanistan and its people have changed. Uh, and perhaps that, that will mean that they change too. You, you mentioned those reports that you're hearing on the ground or, or from Afghanistan. How do you establish, you know, that, they, that obviously goes against what the Taliban have been promising and this PR offensive that they've put together, whatever you want to call it. How, when you get there, do you establish the truth of what's happening? Well, the information coming from Herat is from people who the BBC has directly spoken to uh, who are living in the city, but obviously their identity is, is not being revealed. But, you know, as, as a kind of a general rule, when, when you are on the ground, you try and do as much as you can face to face. You try to meet people, you try to gather testimony directly. Um, now, it's not always possible to do that. And, and sometimes it's because of the safety of, of your interviewee rather than concerns about your own safety. And often you have to really guarantee people anonymity uh, and be sure that you can deliver that, that you, you really can protect their identity and that they can't be identified afterwards. But you're also relying hugely and, and, and really it's the most important thing 
on the knowledge of your local colleagues, on their expertise, because they are the people who were there before you and after you. They are the people who have a history in the country, who have their own huge extended network. Um, so, so without them, really, you can't you can't reach those kind of uh, evaluations about who to speak to, who's reliable, who isn't, who can we trust, uh, and who is willing to speak. And I think increasingly that's going to be an issue in Afghanistan. Now, particularly in Kabul, um, people will be under a very tight, um, they'll be under a lens, they'll be under a spotlight. And, and for example, we know that Taliban fighters went looking for a journalist who was working for the German media outlet Deutsche Welle. And when they didn't find him, they killed one of his family. Yeah, you mentioned the word trust there as well. Do you, do you worry that it'll be difficult to get uh, Afghans to trust you? The, this idea that the trust in the West surely has taken a massive hit, is perhaps even entirely broken, uh, given the given what's happened over the last kind of three weeks? Yeah, I, I think we have to make a distinction between how they may feel about Western governments and how they will treat Western journalists. Um, generally speaking, the, there's a huge amount of um, warmth um, from the Afghan people, you know, even even in difficult times. Obviously, I'm not there on the ground at the moment, but the sense I get from my colleagues who are and who are reporting the story at the moment is, is that they're not having any difficulties of that kind. I think faith in the West, faith in Western leadership, faith in Britain and, and the US, you know, without a doubt, that has taken a hammering. And there was a great line on Channel 4 last week from from Matt Fry, who said the airport at Kabul had become the departure lounge of Western credibility. Mm. Uh, I think it's 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 hard to argue with that. Um, so, yes, I think on that level, there will be a huge sense of being abandoned. And and Afghans are saying that, particularly those who worked with Western forces, who had all of their paperwork, who had the right um, to, to be evacuated with their families. And, and because of the shambles of the way the pullout happened, they simply couldn't reach the airport. You call it a shambles. I mean, we, we have President Biden calling the US airlift of all these people, 120,000 people, an extraordinary success. No nation has ever done anything like it in all of history, he says. Do you think history will judge it as a success or will it be remembered for the chaos, for the shambles of people clinging to aircrafts, the bombing at the airport, the leaving behind of Afghans? I mean, I, I suspect the latter. Um, I think, yes, you know, huge numbers were brought out, um, but many, many more were left behind. People went through extraordinary risks and great hardship to get inside the gates of that airport. Uh, you know, possibly it would always have been a very difficult exit, but I think it certainly seems to have been done um, in a way that just appeared to lack planning. Uh, you know, it was inevitable that huge numbers were going to try to gather outside the airport. Getting rid of Bagram Air Base seems to have left the Americans, you know, in a very weakened position. They were totally dependent on Kabul Airport. That was the only place that people could could converge on. So, of course, they did. There weren't sufficient numbers outside the gates to try to maintain order. Of course, the Taliban were there outside, but they weren't controlling the situation adequately. Um, so it, it seems as if a, a lot of uh, unforced errors took place uh, in the final sort of uh, week or so and with with very tragic consequences. I mean, one of the young men who fell from that aircraft, tragically, I mean, just extraordinary to think how terrified and desperate you must be to hang on to the undercarriage of an aircraft that is taking off the runway. 
and one young man was identified later as a gifted soccer player from the national team. And then there were those who died outside uh, in the bombings because huge crowds had gathered outside and, and were a, a very obvious target. Was there any way of pulling out that wouldn't have been chaotic and shambolic? You know, there is a view out there that the real mistakes were made were made 20 years ago in occupying the country in the first place. And when everything failed, there was never going to be a clean way out of this. I think it's a hard question to answer and, and particularly not having been there on the ground when it was all taking place. But I think one of the things that does seem to have been a mistake is that in the negotiating process that was going on between the American the American government and the Taliban, the Afghan government were not party to that. They were really excluded. They were left out. Um, and, and I think they were greatly weakened as a result. And yet the theory was that somehow the Afghan government was supposed to be able to to maintain order and, and you know, stand up in the face of the Taliban when the Americans were gone. I mean, perhaps inevitably we would have had chaotic, tragic days around uh, Kabul airport. But I think a longer time frame and some system for processing people away from the airport I think that was also an issue. There was nowhere for people to go except to to crowd the gates of the airport. Foreign embassies weren't processing applications by then. Um, I saw some reports that people were, you know, standing in desperation outside one of the foreign embassies trying to put pieces of of paper in and and the embassy was already empty. The staff were gone. So I, I think possibly there could have been more thought given to how will this actually be done? You know, what 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 kind of measures can be put in place to, to try to minimise? We probably couldn't have avoided the scenes at Kabul airport, but to try to minimise the, the cost of that. What can the media do in all this? What do you see your role as if and when you get there? I mean, I, I think our job is is in a way um, very simple. It's it's to go and, and, and see as much as we can see, talk to as many people as, as we can speak to and to, you know, to tell people what's going on. Um, I don't think it's our role to to tell people how to feel or or to try to shape um, public policy or, or political decision making. Um, I don't really think even if the media wants to do that, I'm not sure it manages to do that anymore. But I do think that um, we have to simply tell the story and I always remember something that that Martha Gellhorn said, you know, war happens to people one by one. And I think one of the most important things you can do when you are on the ground somewhere is is to tell individual stories, Um, because I think that's something that people relate to. It's very easy to sort of disconnect from numbers, um, from armies, from battlefields, but it's not easy to ignore you know, a woman standing with her child in her arms uh, or a young girl who who people can can connect with. And, and again, something I always remember years and years ago in, in Sarajevo when the city was under siege and, and the news, you know, it was being covered. But after a while, it, it stopped being a story that people were paying attention to. And you'd hear this phrase every day. It was sort of like the weather forecast. You know, there'll be sporadic shelling in Sarajevo. And I remember a Bosnian journalist who I was working with saying, yeah, you call it sporadic shelling when the shell isn't landing on your house. So I think that the main thing is to try to be there, um, gather as much testimony as we can, and in as much as is possible now, um, let, let the Afghans on the ground tell their own story.
That's a really interesting point you raised there just about the lessening attention, in that case in Sarajevo. But is that the concern here as well, that the, the, there'll be another withdrawal, that the, the media effectively withdraws and the attention of the world moves elsewhere, you know, and, and the people kind of forget about what's going on in Afghanistan, even though it seems that seems ridiculous now because it's, it's, it's so front and centre. But we've all got short attention spans and we all move on. I think that is what happens. I think it happens, you know, frankly, with, with every major news story, with every crisis. Um, it's it's the nature of news. It's And it's also the nature, I think, of um, people's attention span these days. And there's an awful lot of things, you know, clamouring for their attention. Uh, and people always have things to worry about close to home. Uh, and that obviously these days in, includes COVID. So I, I think we have to accept that people will, will shift their focus. But I think that's in a way almost when it's most important to be there uh, and, and to keep going back and to keep telling the stories and, and to remind people three months on and six months on this is still happening. And for example, one of the places where I've gone five or six times in recent years has been to Yemen, which is a, a, a story that you know, really is one of the most underreported stories and, and one of the stories that is, is permanently at risk of being forgotten. And, and all you can do is, is get there when you can. Uh, and, and, you know, the BBC isn't alone in going there. You know, other organisations do it too. But really, you know, it, it would be great if we could be on the ground in Yemen every single day because the, the situation there is, is so acute and the needs are so great. But, you know, we all have to accept that you have certain moments when, when the focus is on a particular story and, and you know, people are willing to listen and engage um, without a doubt, you know, international attention and political attention moves on. But but I think there are very legitimate fears uh, on the part of people that there will, when, when the attention fades away, when, you know, the, the global, um, when the global international agenda has moved elsewhere, which it always does, that this will be the time when the Taliban, you know, go back to their old ways of, of assassinations and targeted killings. Okay, well, we're in conversation with the BBC's international correspondent Orla Gearan this afternoon and Second Captain Saturday. And it's almost time to focus on a very significant final section of the show as we rank for the final time this series, in fact, our guest's sporting life. How will it affect our final non-sports person, sports person table for 2021? Find out after these. Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. BBC's international correspondent Orla Gearan is our guest this week on the final Second Captain Saturday of the series. Orla, we've been fascinated by your insights so far, but let's get to what you're really comfortable talking about, sport. <laughs> we know we know from what you said earlier, you're no great fan of personal trainers in Istanbul, but what about growing up back in Dublin? Did you play anything? Yeah, I have to put my hand up here and say I sort of played chasing. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's probably about it. I mean, as I say, I, I did sort of dig back into the... Um, annals of time to try and come up with something for for Kieran here. I know I know he's famously generous in his um, <laughs> scoring well, you know, system. I'm also, <laughs> also temperamental, Orla. That's the thing. That's why that's why this is so terrifying for you. Well, yeah. I wanted to give you anything, something, anything to, to work with Kieran. So, so here we are in no particular order. Uh, I was in a fencing club um, for a while. I was pretty dreadful, I have to say. Um, because in fencing, you need to sort of learn this concept of, of staying a safe distance away from your opponent, who, like you, is carrying a sword. I didn't really grasp the safe distance concept, so I kept sort of charging in and, and you know, 
honestly, for a few weeks or a few months, probably I was black and blue. But but the sort of key aspect of this that I want you to focus on, Kieran, if, if I could, okay. is not the yeah. actual fencing, but the fact that afterwards there would inevitably be a, a big sort of chit chat and, you know, probably a compulsory Indian takeaway. And we would wrap up <laughs> proceedings at about one or two in the morning, which was notable because at the time I was working on Morning Ireland. So I had to go in at about four in the morning. So I think this is a testament to stamina and and to commitment, um, if I may okay. suggest. OK, I mean, it it sounds more like you're it sounds more like your your commitment is to the Indian uh, takeout than the fencing. <laughs> but that, this that's is incredibly concerned. Orla's, Orla, Orla's been paying a lot of attention. She knows that you can be manipulated. She's she's literally yeah, she's kind of massaging you. I, razor. This I is feel my levers being pulled. Yeah, here. that's I, fine. I, I think Kieran has a tremendously hard job, works in very <laughs> tough conditions and consistently delivers. So yeah. uh, well, also, thank you. Orla. I appreciate that. <laughs> also, I did briefly do horse riding lessons. Um, okay. with another friend of mine who was a great rider. Again, in my case, uh, less so. And on one occasion, I was doing a lesson where, um, I think it's called a lunge lesson, where the horse is being, there's a long rein on the horse and you're not holding it. It's, it's, it's held by the trainer. But in this case, the trainer hadn't arrived and this young groom said, oh, listen, I can do it, no problem. So we started this lesson and I was on this horse that, you know, I promise you was two stories high. And... Um, in, on, in, in an indoor arena with some grass which and straw, which turned out to be very important. So at one stage, a dog started barking. The groom got startled, dropped the reins. The horse took off. I hung on probably for a nanosecond and came flying off the back and landed straight on my back, flat oh. on the ground. And the poor groom ran over and said, don't try and move, don't try and move. And I remember lying there thinking, can I actually move? But fortunately, fortunately, uh, I didn't suffer any lasting damage, but I said goodbye to the horse riding. <laughs> but in just something else that we can't leave out and a more recent entry for your consideration. Um, <laughs> I am on holidays in Dublin at the moment. I have three times recently dropped my nephew off at Gaelic summer camp, <laughs> which which, you know, I feel has to be worth something. And finally, I would like to suggest a specialty category um, which may only apply to me, okay. which is accumulating and filling Irish passports. <laughs> and I, I think in the last 20 years, give or take, I've gone through about 20. You've gone through 20 so, full passports. I think so, yeah. How many, yeah, how many, stamps, mean, the, are, how many stamp pages are in a passport, <laughs> I wonder? 24? Well, in, in a large, in, yeah, in a large passport, it's 64. Um so I think, I mean, the, the wonderful people in the passport office who have always been great, by the way, when I've needed more, um, I, I think they can correct me. But I'd say it's, yeah, it's around the 20. So I'm, I'm hoping here on that again, on the commitment and, mm. and sort of stamina front, <laughs> that might get me a point or two. This is... Can I ask, by the way, or... I'm sorry, Od, but this is like the most sustained... Uh, oh, it's uh, amazing! Barrage on my scoring. Yeah, it really is. It's an extraordinary barrage. I'm, I'm, I am suitably impressed. Good. Can I ask, by the way, or I know there's a question that comes from somebody who loves sport and always has, and, and maybe is fascinated by people who, for some bizarre reason, don't. As though everybody in the world shares my passion. But were you were you never encouraged into sport? Did you just have no interest yourself? What, how, how did that all work? I mean, I could honestly say own sort of lifelong aversion, but but. Um, 
Looking back, I think also I I was at school at a time when there was really no emphasis on on women's sports. And, you know, perhaps if if I had had the interest, I could have gone off and, and, and sort of drummed up teams to join. But I'm I'm really pleased to see that it's it's so different now. Uh, and I was delighted during the week to see that the um, women's football team are going to get the same match fees as the men's mm. and, you know, good on the men for, for taking a reduction. I mean, I thought that was absolutely brilliant and um, you know not before time so I, I do understand now I think more than I would have thought at, at, you know when I was younger the value of being in a sport you know it's far more than than just kicking the ball if that's what it happens to be but obviously it is it is something that teaches you great discipline and camaraderie and and you know working in a team so I, I can certainly see that um, you know that's something that um that's great. And obviously, if you find a sport that you're any good at, which clearly, you know, haven't done so far, um, you might also have the satisfaction of, of, you know, scoring. OK, so what is your sporting highlight out of all that? Is, is it the passport collecting? I guess, yeah. Let's go for that. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do the job. Murph, can you please rank this sporting life? I'm intrigued to know this is going to go. This sporting life of Orla Gear. You don't understand. I could have had class. Don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, Orla, this is it. We've put it off for as long as we could, but it's now time for us to focus on your career sporting highlight. Nominate a sports person that I that I feel most closely resembles you, and then give you a score out of one hundred. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it. But here I am forced once again into a seemingly impossible position and I'd like to thank you at this juncture for recognising the difficulty that this job entails so <laughs> absolutely yeah, I, it, it's on the record uh, so your all time sporting highlights uh, are, they're all kind of trending in one direction for me and I'm going to extrapolate a couple of things from your chosen disciplines if I'm looking at this dispassionately there's really only one conclusion to make you are already three-fifths of the way to becoming Ireland's next great modern pentathlete like your hero and role model, <laughs> Nata- three-time Olympian Natalia Coyle. You've done the fencing, you've done the horse riding, you even met a horse at least as temperamental as Constantine, <laughs> the demon horse that did for Natalia's medal chances in Tokyo. Don't mention that name, Murph. I'm sorry. Uh, you've done a bit of running. All you need now is to learn how to shoot, get those swim times down a bit, and you could be Ireland's representative in Paris in three years' time. Is this just a crazy pipe dream, or do you have the drive, determination, and relentless will to win that defines the truly great Olympians? The answer to that question is no. As your personal (laughs) trainer would testify, you most certainly do not have the drive or the determination to become an Olympian. But that's okay. You can't be good at everything. Points added for honesty, (laughs) points deducted for, you know, everything else. In short, having weighed up all the pros and cons... It's 64 points for you. Good enough for seventh, not last, not last, on this season's non-sports person, sports person leaderboard, Orla Guerin. This has been your sporting life. Second last, Orla, will you take that? I will. I think it's particularly fair and uh, probably Kieran at his most generous. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been absolutely amazing. Well done, Murph, and well done, Orla. Listen, great stuff. Round of applause, please, Kieran, for Orla Guerin. Thanks, lads.
Dublond and All the Way is our final song, believe it or not, of this series of Second Captain Sadie. Murph, can I start? Can we go back a second? What just happened there? That was a that was a shambles, what? quite frankly. What? She what? absolutely played you like a fiddle. They're I, doing their homework in advance now. I, they know I, I, you're I, weak. I literally don't know what you're talking about. Be honest. Were you planning to put Orla at the bottom of the table, but then chickened out as she manipulated no. you and told her to give you points for X, Y, and Z? Absolutely not. Mm. I mean, Johnny Watson got 49 points last week. She's not getting less than 49 points. Well, Come on. Yeah. I held strong. Hmm. I think, what did she say? I think Kieran has a tremendously hard job, works in very tough conditions, and consistently delivers. That's real game-recognized game, Murph, just I, yourself and Orla. I, well, I certainly have no argument with anything that Orla <laughs> said there. Uh, listen, you know, we all work in... Well, me and Orla have worked in a lot of extremely trying working environments, mm-hmm. so I don't expect you to understand the pressures that, okay. that we actually thrive under. Thrive under. So just, you know, there's, there's a lesson there in there for you, own if you're willing to listen. Really enjoyed talking to Orla today. The story of the young footballer who died at the airport in Kabul, she just touched on that. Uh, he was one of the people trying to cling to an American plane as it took off amid those tragic scenes. Zaki Anwari was that young man's name. He played for the, the national youth team. For other sports people left behind, it's a really weird and unclear situation, I suppose, like it is for people in every walk of life in Afghanistan. But sport was banned for women the last time Taliban was in power and was outlawed in many cases for men as well. So it's, it's kind of hard to know what's going to happen there. There was a really poignant moment in the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. The Afghan flag, I don't know if you saw this, Murph, was carried yeah. into the stadium yeah. by a volunteer because the two athletes in the team, one of them male and one of them female, couldn't get out of Afghanistan. And at the time, it was just assumed that they wouldn't be able to represent their country. But funny, I did see that since then, the, there's been almost a reinterpretation of that. And maybe it was seen that just by the fact of, the, of them taking part in the opening ceremony and the flag being brought out, there might have still been a small bit of hope that they could compete and lo and behold it's happening after what's been described as a week-long behind-the-scenes scramble involving multiple organizations and governments those two athletes finally made it to Tokyo as I said a male athlete and female athlete and both of them competed there so that's a good news story I suppose it's also the case of the Afghan national women's football team who were they were seen to be extremely at risk because they were a symbol of resistance to the values of the Taliban and some of them have been really vocal women's rights activists they also managed to get out after a really harrowing journey so even then those players were left in a position where it's like listen you have to choose which family members you're going to bring with you because we can't evacuate everybody so even the good news stories are tinged with incredible sadness yeah and uh, the story of the Afghan women's team I, you know you may well be watching this in a in a cinema in a couple of years because it's it's absolutely yeah. cinematic in its drama and everything it's an, an extraordinary tale what a brilliant insight Orla gave into all that today and thanks again to her for coming on the show and being the final guest of the series I guess there's only one item of business left to take care of now Murph the race is run the results are in could you please reveal the final leaderboard in the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person 2021 could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, on it's been a topsy-turvy season, hasn't it? Right out of the gate, in the first show of the season, we thought Richard Ford had done enough for top spot. He's since been overtaken. There have been controversies, points deductions, and quite frankly, shocking scoring irregularities. Thank but you, it is time. <laughs> but it is time now for me to give you the final leaderboard. We'll start at the bottom, as is traditional. Johnny Waterson, after his 50-point deduction, is rock bottom on 49 <laughs> points. Orla Guren is not last, but she is last adjacent on 64 <laughs> points. Body Greer couldn't get out of the bottom three all season on 71 points. World-famous architect and perfectionist Yvonne Farrell is unfortunately the very definition of mid-table mediocrity on <laughs> 77 points. Uh, Dave Balfour, for those I love, had enough points to challenge for top spot in a regular season, but 
This was no regular season. Safe competition. 80 points good enough this year, only for fourth. Dernie Griefe, subject to a steward's inquiry, is on 84. Richard Ford is next on 85 points in second place. But the second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2021 is Malcolm Gladwell, who finishes with an all-time joint highest score of 88 points. He's even joint top all-time with Dorothy Cross and Gabby Logan, previous winners wow. from the 2016 and 2017 seasons. Will 2022 see the 90-point <laughs> barrier being smashed, Roger Bannister style? Who can tell? But I will yeah. say this, on there has been almost a surfeit of obsequious forelock tugging going on this season from Richard Ford emailing me the week after his appearance to tell me he caught a fish <laughs> and wants some more points for it to, yes, I admit it, Orla Gearn's quite frankly extremely successful complimenting of me and my pathetic efforts this afternoon. Future guests, take note, this is an extremely effective route to more points. I will also accept gifts, food hampers, bouquets <laughs> of flowers, etc, etc. And it is a, at least a nice change from the utter disdain with which G- Gabriel Byrne rightly treated me and my methods a couple we of need years to- ago. Yeah, I think we need to get the greatest non-sports person, sports person trophy over to our old buddy Malcolm Gladwell. I'm sure he remembers doing the show and he hasn't moved on with his many projects. <laughs> I, who was our last series winner? Was it Lord Peter? Was it Haney? Lord Peter Haney. Lord Peter Haney, yeah. With the Haneymeister himself. Listen, Haney, points. if you're listening. Yep. If you're listening, fire the trophy onto Malcolm there when you get a chance to big Mal Gladwell. If you get a chance there. That's us done for this series of Second Captain Saturday. It's been a hell of a couple of months. We've loved every second of it, and we'll be back with you on radio again later this year. In the meantime, you should check out all the other stuff we're doing on secondcaptains.com. We've got daily independent member led podcasts, and we produce work like the Players' Chair with Richie Sadler, an international series like Where is George Gibney, which just this week got nominated for a pre Europa prize. So please do join us and support independent, commercial-free broadcasting. Big thanks to Killian Down for all his research on the series, Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing. Thanks to Jan and Studio for all her help over the last number of months. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. It's been very emotional. Thanks so much for listening and for all the nice messages we've been getting about the show. We'll see you again soon. Second captain, first captain, whatever.